all you reinventors. This is Leslie Jane Seymour, and I am the founder of this podcast and of the Covey Club. And we are the place to come for reinvention. You have found it. This is ground zero. Aren't you glad you're here? And we have all kinds of ways to get your reinvention going. And one of them is to listen to other people who have done it and listen to their stories, be inspired by them, and also learn from their action items that they give you at the end of each one of these podcasts. And then you can mosey on over to coveyclub.com itself. And there's tons and tons and tons of content there. There are downloads, stories, essays, everything you can imagine about reinventing. We know that reinvention needs a partner. It's very hard to do it all by yourself. And in fact, the magic of Covey Club of actually joining the club we have figured out is to reinvent with people you don't already know because they will accept you as you're going to be, not as you were. So mosey on over to Covey Club and join us now and on with our show. So welcome, Geraldine. I'm so excited to talk to you. And this is just a, a great opportunity to talk about resilience. Thank you so much. I am really delighted to be here. So you have quite a story for anybody who's listening who thinks that their life cannot change out of the blue, having nothing to do with them. Why don't we tell, tell your story in an obviously compacted way? What happened? Sure. You know, the thing that always stands out to me is the ordinariness of the day. Just yeah. sheer ordinariness. I was on a business trip uh, down to Washington, D.C. I had taken that train literally probably a hundred times um, and, and traced that exact route. And on May 12th, 2015, on the return leg back to my home in New Jersey, the train derailed outside of Philadelphia. It was going 106 miles an hour on a curve designed for a maximum of 50. Jeez. Eight people were killed, uh, more than 100 injured, and I was completely crushed. I was not expected to live. My family was advised that they needed to come very quickly to say goodbye. Oh. My brother packed a dark suit uh, for my funeral. And um, at the time, I had three young boys at home. They had been mm. called hospitals all night while my husband tried to search for me. But I did live. And I took two and a half years almost um, of full-time disability leave from my job and literally dozens of surgeries and multiple hospitalizations. But I'm back. I'm back and I'm here and I'm working full time and I've seen two of my sons graduate and my husband and I are about to celebrate 25 years of marriage. Good grief. Incredible. So obviously one of the things that happens as you get older is that there are going to be things maybe not as dramatic as yours but that come into your life unexpectedly, which can be widowhood, divorce, um, death of a child, I mean, losing your job, I mean, any range of things that can happen. 
How were you prepared for that? And what, what in your background do you think made you, obviously the physical survival was not under your control necessarily, but what do you think about your spiritual and mental survival? You know, in some ways I was very prepared for it. I was in reasonable physical shape, uh, not a triathlete, but I mm-hmm. <laughs> tried to take care of myself. Uh, my doctors have told me that was important. Um, I had a lot of family support. I also have always had a strong faith. Um, I'm not necessarily the person that's at church every Sunday, but underneath it, I, I grew up with and, and, and do have a deep faith that was very important in my lowest moments. On the other hand, I was not prepared in the sense that I had been really independent and, you know, just always muscling through things on my own. You know, if I just worked a little bit harder, I thought I could handle anything. And so going from literally traveling nationally every other week, you know, sometimes it would be Paris and Brussels and Geneva, and sometimes it was Ethiopia and the slums and outside Kampala, Uganda. And and I was, I really prided myself on that independence. So to be thrust into a position of complete dependence, zero control, and unable to manage things myself was really tough. How did you deal with that? Did you, it took I mean, because that, I, I think a lot of people listening are like me and you, very independent, very used to making their own way, don't sit in the back seat make things happen. And that scares me. And I think that's one of the things that scares people like me and us sometimes about getting older is the idea of, you know, after having so much agency on your life, possibly not having agency. How do you deal with that? Um, Piece by piece. There was no one silver uh, uh, solution, Mm -hmm. but very gradually. And, and I, literally dealt with it. There was a physical piece of it. There was an emotional piece of it. There was a relationship piece of it. Um, I'd be lying if I said, despite the fact that I have this wonderful supportive family, their accident and my subsequent complete loss of independence was a major source of strain. Of course. And, and I think a lot of caregivers probably identify with how my husband was feeling, um, mm-hmm. which unappreciated. <laughs> Right, right. And we really had a hard time as much as we wanted to. We were trying, but it was very hard to connect. And I felt very lonely in that journey. So I gradually, though, in the beginning, we were just so grateful. We were just so happy I had survived. And the doctors told me they had no medical explanation for how my body could have absorbed so much force. And I didn't end up with a brain injury. And I broke four vertebra and but they broke in just such a way that it didn't impinge on my spinal cord. Wow. So we were in the high of gratitude, but then reality set in. And that's when I really had to start to grapple with the kinds of emotions that you were describing. So what did you where did you reach for for help? Did you read? Did you go into therapy? Did you was there an array array of things that you used? You know, that's exactly, array is the perfect word for it. Um, 
I did seek professional counseling that helped me understand it wasn't that I wasn't trying hard enough that my recovery was going on so long or that I was being weak because I was in so much pain, you know, that I just wasn't tough enough. It was all incredibly expected and normal and natural and is more often than not the result of major physical trauma. So that helped me in the sense that I, for me, grasping that there was actually a scientific biochemical reaction (laughs) for some of the things I was feeling helped me feel less guilty because I felt guilty about being sad and depressed. Eight people died. What right did I have to be crying and, and, and feeling sorry for myself? So I also had to give myself that time to grieve. You know, I, I think going through that grief and letting myself just hurt and be sad was actually part of the healing process as opposed to this false optimism of, oh, this is just so wonderful. I survived. I'm going to be, I kept calling my boss, Leslie, telling him, you know, six weeks, definitely, you know, bones will heal. Six weeks, I'll be back to work. Oh my God, you sound so much like a Covey woman. It's scary. That's what we think. Everybody knew it was not true except me. (laughs) So, you know, but but in a way then I felt worse. Like I had missed my goal. So I'd call my boss again and I'd say, you know, I just need one more surgery, like another month or two. You know, and and I did that for two and a half years. (laughs) So very gradually, I came to a point of acceptance that this was going to take much longer than I ever thought or hoped for or expected. And the last thing I'll cite, I mean, certainly the support of friends, people that come and make you laugh, that could take some of the tension out of the room. And my husband and I were were stressing each other out. Um, but I opened myself to, to new ways of healing, things I had always dismissed, you know, yoga, meditation, deep breathing. I, I always made fun of those things. I'm a little ashamed to admit. <laughs> I told my husband when I was having my first son that I refused to go to Lamaze classes because I already knew how to breathe. Thank you. Very oh, much. my God. You are a tough butt. Incredible. I him, I've been breathing for 30 years. And oh, my goodness. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Okay. But but when you're at the end of your rope, I was going through opioid withdrawal. I was in tremendous pain. It was eight, nine months out of the, after the accident. I really bottomed out, and I was willing to try anything. And actually, I think that freed up and, and, and gave me back a sense of agency. I realized as I did those exercises that... I did have some control over my body and it it gave me tools to deal with the pain. And I had not expected that. I was blown away. I used to make fun of yoga as, you know, something that people that don't actually want to sweat and exercise want to do. Yes, I know. I know. I mean, I, I understand. The enforced slowness and very gentle stretching, deep breathing, Focusing on my body and what I could control was enormously healing. So where are you now in your progress? You've got a book that just came out, Bone by Bone. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. Um, People always ask me, they say, oh, it must have been cathartic to write the book. And I said, no, it was awful. (laughs) 
you know, I was reliving the worst moments oh, of yeah. my life, and, you know, in excruciating detail and trying to describe it just right. And and there was so much of it that I was unconscious for. I, you know, I was interviewing people and doing a lot of research, but the research was healing and understanding, you know, my friends, my relatives perspectives on what happened. And it has been enormously overall healing for me to be able to share my story, the kinds of things that helped me, the things I know now I wish I had appreciated at the beginning of the journey with anybody else that might need that message, you know, and, and regardless, we all, we all struggle with something difficult at some point. So the book was just published uh, this summer and I'm donating any and all proceeds to the American Trauma Society. But the main reason I wrote it was to try to help other survivors because when I was recovering, I'm a reader and I, I read every book I could get my hands on. And I hope that this is the book that I was looking for and couldn't find. But in answer to your question where I am, I am back at work full time now. I work, um, uh, I'm, I'm a senior executive. I report to the CEO of a S&P 500 uh, women's health company called Organize. Oh, wow. Yeah, oh, we spun out from Merck. We are, I joke that we're kind of a startup at scale. Okay. We, we spun out. So um, we're a brand new company focused on women's health. Wow. We're in 140 countries around the world, have almost 10,000 employees. So. Oh, my God. That's a startup for Merck? <laughs> we, we spun out. So, you know, we, we're, we're a new company. And I got to stand on the balcony at the New York Stock Exchange and ring the opening bell. And that was such a moment of satisfaction for me because it was the journey back to the professional world was tough. You know, I've been yeah. out of it, not, not on vacation, not right. you know, reading things out for two and a half years. Right. And I started back very gradually part-time built up to full-time. Then I would have a setback and have to go out again on medical leave. So to be able now to work full-time at a job that is meaningful to me, no, no, no offense to anyone out there, but I always joke that if I worked for a chair company, I probably wouldn't have gone back to the job because maybe the world has enough chairs. But women's health is something that is intensely meaningful to me. So that is the kind of thing I think more deeply about how I spend my time and making sure I'm spending it on things and people that matter. And that's probably the biggest difference since before the accident, where maybe I was a little bit more on autopilot. Um, in terms of trying to advance my career and balance my, my you know, uh, my wonderful children and, and all of those juggling acts that we all do. How do we get out of that sort of just on the wheel and forgetting about, you know, the day-to-day -day and appreciating the day-to-day? -day? I mean, I think COVID certainly pulled a lot of us back and said, shook us up and said, you know, this isn't forever. I mean, I, I think that sort of made everybody realize, I think that's why you have the great resignation is, you know, when COVID said, mm, you might not be here in two weeks. <laughs> A lot of us, including me, were like, hmm, that, that changes things. It's so true. And, and I think it's forced, you know, one of the very few silver linings of COVID is that I think a lot of people, I mean, certainly a lot of people did not intend to leave the workforce and really struggled. Correct. Um, but, but others 
at least from stories I've heard, are it, it caused them to exactly as you said, take that step back and maybe be a little more intentional about how they wanted to spend their time. And that was certainly the case for me, you know, but it, it didn't just happen. I really had to work at it. It, it kind of hit me in the face one day when I, my kids got home from school, you know, roughly three in the afternoon, all three boys would, would come in the door. And I thought, wow, I've actually never been here when they got home from school. And, and, and that recognition, and they, they would come sometimes, climb in bed with me, we'd watch a movie in the afternoon. And I started to really gradually realize you know, I would never wish the accident on anyone or, or never say it was a blessing in disguise, but but there was good that came out of it. If, if you looked hard enough, you know, that enforced slowness and time with my kids actually was really meaningful to me. So what do you do now that's differently in terms of a routine? Do you incorporate a slowness into your life? Do you, what, what are the the things because so many people are trying to figure out how to create a life and a daily routine that is more acceptable, more valuable, um, and not just this sort of life whizzing by until something stops you dramatically. Yeah, you know, I, I several things. I do meditate every night, um, and I am. Uh, more deliberate and more regular in in my prayer and in I think thinking spiritually uh, about how I'm spending my time and whether I'm fulfilling what I set out to do, what I promised myself I would do when I decided to go back to work. And um, I also invest more in my friendships. And maybe that sounds strange, but I think when you're so caught up with work. And juggling, you know, three, three, three young children. I had a lot of friends, but I can't say I was the one that always remembered the birthday card or, you know, always made it to the ladies night out, you know, and I appreciated the support of that broader network and, and people I wasn't even that close to that just leaned in, you know, weren't constantly asking me what I, what help I wanted. Cause usually my answer was I didn't want help. And they just did. They just leaned in and did stuff. <laughs> And I am so appreciative now. I really prioritize in a greater way my relationship with, with my girlfriends, with, with my network. Um, we really need each other. And, and they have made me laugh. They've drank wine with me when, when I was at my low point. You know, they, they, when my husband and I were fighting, they would take me to the doctor. I didn't want to be in the car with him. <laughs> and, and they just appreciate it in a different way. And, you know, I used to stress at night if I, sent an email too hurriedly at work the day before. And, and I don't stress about that anymore. I really don't. And if I find myself obsessing over office politics or something like that, I'm much more deliberate about correcting myself and saying, you know what, I don't have to be here. So if I'm not happy, I promised myself I wouldn't be here. And you then kind of realize, you know what, I do want to be here and this is satisfying. And these are just the little blips that come up. And I'm better about letting those things roll off me now. What other resources did you use to get yourself centered like that? Was there, was there, you know, were there lectures you listened to, podcasts, books? What did you, were there any meaningful um, resources that listeners could reach out and grab? Sure. Two things. I, I 
really enjoy reading. It was a while till my brain cleared enough that I that I could focus on a book. But once I could, um, I started researching every book on trauma I could find. And a couple I would really recommend to folks. Um, one is called Surviving Survival. It's by Lawrence Gonzalez. And it's a story of survivors, but not how they survived whatever happened to them. Maybe it's the loss of a child. Maybe it was a terrible tragedy or an accident um, or domestic violence, but it's what they did over the next year after they survived. And, and the ones that really made it forward to, to a new life and, and, and a fulfilling life and the ones that never really moved past that. And what are the differences? What are the techniques that they used? And I thought it was incredibly insightful it's also a, a, a really interesting read because it's just amazing what people survive and, and go forward, you know, with, and, and still live with joy. Um, another one I love, and, and she does a podcast. She does an email newsletter. Uh, it's called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. And the author is Kate Bowler, and she's a divinity professor at Duke. And she was suddenly diagnosed at a young age with a two-year-old toddler at home uh, with stage four terminal colon cancer. Oh my, um, my goodness. You never think of it. The book is hysterical. She's a gifted writer. Uh, you know, they're, 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 she, is, she is obviously a spiritual person, but she is so relatable and so funny. And she just has a way with words that, that really hit me. And made me smile, made me laugh, and say, you know what, I'm I'm here, and I'm okay, and I can do this. <laughs> the other thing I love that that maybe some folks can identify with, I had always traveled. I love to travel. I've always done internationally oriented jobs, and when I was healthy enough to travel a bit, but not healthy enough to work full time, I asked my youngest son one day hey, you know, why don't you and I like take a trip together? You want to go to the beach, you know, for a couple of days? And he said, he was eight, maybe nine at that point. He said, you know, mom, I'd really like to go to Japan. <laughs> said, that sounds like my son. How funny. That's so interesting. Really? He said, yeah, you know, they've been studying World War II and he, he just found it fascinating, the culture. And I said, well, think about that. And his face kind of fell. And I said, you know what? I have frequent flyer miles out the wazoo, you know, I, I, I mean, my, with my, what are you waiting for? Right. Yeah. With my pain, I, it, it had to be business class. And for my nine-year-old to sit on that business class, lay flat seat, I joked that the plane could have just flown around in circles. He thought it was, <laughs> I mean, mom, they give me unlimited rolls. <laughs> he was so happy for the warm bread. How and cute. and you know, we went to Tokyo Disney. Oh, what a great idea. Obviously, I wasn't doing any roller coasters, but it was a wonderful (laughs) cultural experience. So then, of course, I had to do a special trip with my other two sons. And those trips, for for people that like to travel, giving me back my sense that I was still me, I could do this. You know, yeah, I couldn't walk that far. I was not, you know, surfing in Maui while my son was. But I was there, you know, and, and I zip lined over the 100 foot waterfall. <laughs> and, oh, my goodness. You know, it was it was kind of helping, like, overwrite some of the stress and the bad memories that my kids and I had gone through. 
and making this kind of once in a lifetime, you know, when you're working, you never go on a vacation one kid at a time, right? That's right. You have two weeks, you go everybody. So anyway, for me, travel, going different places was also really healing, very healing. It's funny, my son and I used to take trips um, alone together once a year just because his sister was so aggressive. He was a very sweet boy, and she came along and, like, taught him how to fight and all that. And she used to just stress him out so badly that I would be like, okay, we're going to get out of the house, you and me, for two days. And um, we used to go to see history. We love history. He's always loved history. And those were beautiful times that we always remember. We used to go to the battlefields together and, you know, learn the history together. And then my daughter, when she got older and I was like, do you want to go, you know, what do you want to do? She's like, I want to go to the shopping mall. (laughs) So she didn't want to travel. She just wanted to shop. (laughs) So I was like, don't you want to go to history? No. (laughs) Okay. You know, they're they're all different. It's different. Yeah. My, my youngest who went to Japan when my middle son wanted to go to Hawaii, he was like, ah, you don't even need a passport for that. He was so dismissive of his older brother. It's like, that's not an adventure. <laughs> Hawaii turned out to be one of my favorite trips that I took much later in life because I had written it off. I was like, oh, it's cheesy. Why would I want to go there? Right. And then it's just so beautiful, and there was so much to do. And right. I could do, like snorkel with manta rays. Like, it was fabulous. And my oldest son, I have to tell you a funny story. He he decides he wants to go to Portugal and Italy. And I said, oh, fantastic. I'd never been to Portugal. Shockingly, in the surprise of his life, it turned out his girlfriend was going to be there at the same time. <laughs> Isn't that strange? <laughs> Very good, Mom. We had a ball and and because she speaks fluent Portuguese it was actually such a gift we had a great time (laughs) that's great so before we pull into the end here I want to make sure we get to just three tips that you would give from all your wisdom and looking back to women 40 plus who are trying to figure out what's next in their life and how to look forward to it in a positive way what would you say are the you know Three major points of view if you've got four, you're being forced to reinvent yourself after a major trauma. I'd say three. Um, one is there was a really important for me to be grateful and be optimistic. But I also think, you know, blind optimism um, without a dose of realism is a bit of a trap. And I put myself in that trap you know, by telling my boss I'd be back every six weeks and every six weeks feeling like a failure. So I do think it's important that we're positive, we're optimistic, we can do this, but we're grounded. We're grounded in in, in reality. And if I had to do it over again, I would have asked harder questions of the doctors and insisted on more of an understanding of what the next steps would look like so that I did manage my own expectations. But I also think that ultimately being very deliberate about finding the good in what had happened to me, you know, in the beginning, the the pain, the grief, the sadness, you know, I thought my career was over. I, they didn't know whether I'd walk again. I didn't know whether I'd be in pain forever, you know, 
deliberately trying to find something good. I, I mentioned that realization when I thought, wow, I'm actually here when the kids get home from school. I, I can bake them cookies. I've never done that. And that was empowering. And, and thinking, I started giving talks at some churches at uh, I did continuing medical education lectures at some hospitals about the patient's perspective. So learning and looking for those shreds of, of, of positive, those glimmers uh, of gold in the ashes was very important, but you had to, you had to be intentional about it. And then finally, I, I alluded to the importance of relationships and social support and sharing. Um, once I opened myself up and let myself, forced myself, was forced to ask for help and to verbalize what I needed, whether I thought it was realistic or whiny or not, I just found there's so much that people are willing to give. People are, were so good and they lifted me up and they helped me, you know, once I let them in. So realistic optimism, find something good and then share it, share it with others. Um, you know, that, that, you know, investing in your other relationships pays dividends 20 times over. Beautiful. Thank you. Where can everybody find you and find the book? Uh, I'm on GeraldineMitter.com and I uh, would really welcome people to check out my website. There's a link on that website to order the print version of the book, which is also at BoneByBoneBook.com. The book is called Bone by Bone, A Memoir of Trauma and Healing. And um, the audio version, the ebook e version are available on Amazon. And the print version will be in a couple of weeks as well. Are you on social media or anything like that? Uh, yeah, I'm on, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. Um, I'm probably most active on LinkedIn uh, at Gerilyn Ritter. So I Wonderful. want to have the chance to connect with, you know, the, the incredible network that you have put together and have led. Wonderful. Gerilyn, thank you so much for your time and your inspiration. And I just love, I just love what you're teaching us about resilience and bouncing back and hanging in there. And I also appreciate the fact that you say about the, you know, don't be oversold on cheap optimism. That I think is a real American you know, thing, which is, oh, just stay optimistic and everything's going to be great. And it, you know, it doesn't always work like that. It's tougher. It's true. You know, there's, there's a, a real quick, there's a famous story. Um, Admiral Jim Stockdale, who was a prisoner in the Vietnam War, was asked how he survived seven years and, and who didn't make it. And he said, oh, that's easy. The optimists. <gasps> they were the ones that said, we'll be out by Christmas. We'll be out by Easter. We'll be out by summer. He said, and then they die of a broken heart. Oh. He said, I always had faith that I would make it through, that this would be the defining element of my life, that I would embark on a new life with a new purpose. But I also knew it wasn't going to happen anytime soon. So he, he had that foundational optimism. He stayed positive. You have to stay positive, yeah. He was realistic. It's but realistic, yeah. Gerilyn, awesome, wonderful to speak to you. Thank you so much, and we will see you down the road. Wonderful, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, I hope that you will subscribe and follow us and listen to all our other stories of reinvention. There is a reinvention for every single person who is listening today. 
and each reinvention is different. And I would say to you after doing so many of these, my lesson to all of you is everyone can reinvent. There really is just mindset standing in your way. Go out there, change your mindset, go out and change the world because you can do it. And if you need more inspiration and you need some text and you need some downloads and maybe you even need some personal coaching, come on over to cubbyclub.com where you will find all of those things geared to you and making you have the best second half of your life ever because you can. That's what this is all about. So until next time, this is Leslie Jane Seymour and we'll see you.